0: to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs.
1: This week we remind you of the words of the very wise Arthur C. Clarke. Any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic.
0: I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are going into part three of our Dungeon Master Guide deep dive for fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons and today we're going to be covering supernatural gifts. Epic Boons, Planar Travel, and Alien Tech. So all of the wonderful things for when you want to start getting weird in your D&D game.
1: Right. These are definitely a lot of the more fringe rules. But again, if you're hitting that rut and your D&D sessions all feel the same, this is definitely a way to shake things up and throw your players a curveball.
0: I wouldn't say that planar travel is a fringe thing. Planar travel does play a pretty heavy role in most campaigns that end up getting past, say, 8th to 10th level. The planes play such a huge role in D&D, especially planes like the Abyss and the Nine Hells and the Elemental Planes.
1: I know they were always a big plot point in like the D&D pulp novels of the 70s and 80s and even the early 90s, but I can't really remember a campaign that I've been a part of or even that I've run where planar travel actually made an entrance. It was always one of those things that everybody knew about, but nobody ever actually got to do.
0: My problem is that I've never gotten to that point with a group that they've actually gotten to a high enough level to achieve planar travel.
1: Yeah. If you're starting from one, keeping a campaign together that long can be a challenge Particularly as we all get older and responsibilities start stacking up on our plate.
0: But the campaign that I have going right now, if I can actually get around to finding the time to put it up onto Roll20 so we can play remotely, is eventually going to have planar travel because I've got that built into the story arc that I've got these guys on. Specifically the elemental plane of water because Kraken.
1: Oh my, that'll be a lot of fun.
0: I hope so. But anyway, so let's go ahead and get started.
1: So for those who aren't familiar with planar travel in its purest form, how would you explain that and when would you bring that up to, a, or how would you present that to a party?
0: Okay, so the thing you have to remember with regards to planar travel is there are different classifications of the planes. So you have the adjacent planes, which are going to be the astral plane and the ethereal plane. The ethereal plane overlaps the material plane it's where spells like etherealness come in where you can bypass the solid objects in your world there are certain things like phase spiders that can go into the ethereal plane and come back out at will and i think technically the blink spell puts you into the ethereal plane whenever you're not on the material plane while it's active i'd have to double check that one And there are different levels of the ethereal plane. You have the near ethereal, which is what most of your spells that are going to put you into the ethereal plane give you. And that's where you can still see everything around you. Your vision is limited to 60 feet per the rules, regardless of what your vision may be. So you're limited to 60 feet, but you can see into the material plane from the ethereal plane, but you can't interact with anything. On the material plane from the ethereal plane. And then you have from the border ethereal, the near ethereal, you have the deep ethereal. Which allows you to pass between the material plane and the inner planes. Which would be the elemental planes. And then the astral plane is considered the plane of thought. And it's the weird nebulous in-between stuff that transitions you from one plane of existence to another.
1: I follow you with these. So if you actually want to go to the Dungeon Master Guide, this of all things is in the second chapter. So this kind of refers back to what Ian and I were discussing, where they put all of the really nebulous imaginative stuff up front, but all the mechanics for the game tend to be in the back of the Dungeon Master Guide. From the planar categories from the book, it used to show like a little map, and you kind of have to think of this in 3D. But your first two are the Material Plane, which is where we're at, and it's Echoes. So they say that's the Feywild and the Shadowfell. So again, it's the Fey. If anybody's here as a fan of the Dresden Files, that's that extra plane. And then like Ian was talking, the Transitive Plane's the Ethereal Plane or the Astral Plane. And those kind of are your gateway. If you kind of need to imagine this, think of the uh, train station in Deathly Hollows where Harry Potter meets Dumbledore. It's kind of that between here and there. The inner plane are your four elements, and those kind of overlap if you think if this was on a sheet of paper and the material plane was the center circle, then the inner planes kind of north, south, east, west overlap the material plane. These, as Ian said, were the elementals. The outer planes are where all your weird, creepy stuff happens. Um, and then you know have
0: the outer planes are where you end up running into your aligned planes of existence. The outer planes are where you run into things like Mount Celestia, where you run into Baator the Nine Hells, you run into the infinite abyss, you run into Pandemonium and Limbo and Mechanus and all of those. So you have with the outer planes you have eight that are assigned to specific alignments, so Lawful good, lawful neutral, lawful evil, and so on. And then you have eight planes in between each of those that are transition planes. So between, see here, I think it's between lawful good and lawful neutral. There's one in between there. I think it's Elysium that's both lawful good, lawful neutral. It's that transition between the two. And it goes around like that. And then in certain settings, you have an additional plane called the Outlands, which sits in the middle of everything, like the cog, and then all of the other planes are on spokes around it. And at the center of the Outlands is Sigil, the City of Doors, which is the central focus for the old Planescape settings. Because the whole point of Planescape is finding out how to get to Sigil, because once you can get to Sigil, you can go anywhere else. Because there are doors to every plane and doors to every demiplane within Sigil. You just have to have the right key to get in.
1: So if you're a rogue in Sigil, it's a great place to play Ding Dong Ditch?
0: Um, I don't know as if, because portals don't necessarily have physical keys.
1: Granted, but I was just th- saying a door can open both ways. So just go randomly knocking on doors and seeing what you summon.
0: Yeah, that would be a very dangerous prospect.
1: Yeah, that'd be fun.
0: It could be. It could also be a very short campaign.
1: Yeah, I either have that in my mind or the old, like, Benny Han or Scooby-Doo thing where they're running through the hallway of doors and they're, like, popping out in doorways and they've uh, the got Yakety Sax playing right. in the background. Right, right. Which would also be a fun session to run.
0: Just to play off of that, if you end up going into the Abyss, you can actually have something like that moving between layers of the Abyss because the portals in each layer of the Abyss are non-sequential. So you can start off on the first layer of the Abyss and you pass what would be one layer down and you end up on like the 97th layer of the Abyss. And then you go down one more and you're on the 17th layer of the Abyss. And it just bounces around like that.
1: Did you ever play the old NES game Master Blaster? Uh, No, I
0: don't believe I did.
1: The game was similar to that where the levels were very non-sequential so you could jump down to a hole and wind up, go from level one to level five. To level 13 to level 2, and the game was very hard to keep track of because it was very non-sequential like that. So that could have been where the game makers got their inspiration from.
0: Or they could have just decided, hey, wouldn't it be fun if...
1: That's also true. That's back when, you know, NES hard games were insanely hard and there was no such thing as an internet to look up cheats or events or anything like that.
0: (laughs) Right. Uh, You had to talk to your friends and see if any of them had figured it out.
1: Exactly. So all those planes, the last two one is your positive plane and your negative plane, and they kind of overlap everything on top. And those are the planes of raw life force or pure death that kind of go on top of everything. So talking about the planes, this requires a lot of imagination and thought from the DM and players if you're going to try to put them in. Just because travel between the planes, it's really going to be a completely different environment. So there's nothing really physical that you can tie the world into because obviously the material plane is everything we know and unless you've done astral travel and haven't invited me in which case i want my ticket it's hard to imagine these other planes except from a pure imaginative standpoint
0: well the dmg does have basic descriptions of all of the planes it goes through each of the planes and describes what they are like so like the elemental plane of air for example the bulk of it is comprised of what's called the labyrinth of winds So it's a bunch of cyclones and you have to know the proper sequence of cyclones to hit and when to come off of them in order to get where you want to go and not just be trapped in these cyclones for forever. And then there's cities on earth moats that float around within the labyrinth.
1: Do you want to really confuse and frustrate your players? Put them in a labyrinth and don't give them a map. I think that was my second D&D session I did. I actually had my players go into a uh, goblin labyrinth, and basically there were doors that turned into hallways that would loop in on themselves. And I always thought, hey, my players will actually sit down and start drawing a map and trying to figure out if they turned left or right. Four hours later, no one ever did. Everyone was exhausted. Everyone was still lost in this labyrinth. Don't make that mistake.
0: Yeah, don't do that. But because willful planar travel takes a long time to get to, you have to have... Either the Plane Shift spell or the Gate spell to physically go to another plane of existence on your own terms. And I think Plane Shift is either a 6th or 7th level spell, so you don't get that unlocked until fairly late in the game. You can have a way to get to other planes of existence, especially places like the Feywild or the Shadowfell, by putting permanent portals between worlds in the Material Plane. Portals that operate on certain criteria. Maybe they require a certain passphrase to open. Maybe they're only open on the full moon. Or they have a guardian that stands guard in front of the portal to keep people from just wandering in. Or, you know, you have to have a certain artifact in order to activate the portal to pass through. Things like that. Dale Kingsmill has a wonderful video on the Feywild and how she interprets the Feywild and how she runs it. And she draws a lot from Celtic mythology to base her interpretation of the Feywild. Things like if you enter a field under a full moon, you can walk and walk and walk and you'll never reach the other side of the field because it's a transitive location. But if you were to sit down in the field and wait for the sun to come up, then you would be able to stand up and walk across the field normally because the criteria for the transition from the material plane to the Feywild would have closed.
1: That's actually really neat. If you enjoy lore, particularly Celtic lore or even Nordic lore to a point, European lore in general, I would say, there's a lot of Fey lore and you can bring a lot of this into your game and how you're going to pull out your portal. You know, your hinges or your stone cairns is another good old-fashioned portal. Those that are a fan of the Outlander series, the portal that transported her back in time, I forget the character's name, but that was kind of a fae portal. You know, the old concept of like a fairy ring where the mushrooms kind of grow in a circle and you're not supposed to walk in the middle of those because that's where the fae are. Those are often ways. Sometimes these portals require an action of some sort to activate. Sometimes they kind of lay like a trap. So depending on how you want your story to go, if your characters actually need to try to bridge a gap into another plane, or maybe they fall into a trap and have to find their way home, these are different ways you can kind of present these and get your characters to travel without giving them access to really, really high magic early on.
0: So the way that I have it set up in my world, my world is kind of like the garbage collection pit. Of the multiverse. The people who live there don't realize that, but there are a lot of portals from a lot of different planes that connect to my world, but they're one way into it. So you come across a portal into my world and you don't have a way to easily get back out. So you would have to either have access to that high level magic or find one of the very few permanent portals. Back
1: somewhere on the world. That's like the exact opposite of the seance room in the Manchester house, or the Winchester house, rather, where it's got like six entrances in, but only one exit, or it has six exits, but only one entrance in. Sorry, I had that backwards.
0: So, with regards to actually running games that go into alternate planes, my personal opinion is that the Feywild is the one that is the most forgiving for lower level characters. Primarily because if you look in the Monster Manual, the Fey tend to have the lower CRs compared to all of these other creatures. But it makes sense because the Feywild Wild and the Shadowfell, between the two of them, those should be the first places that you end up going.
1: Right, they're the closest to us, so uh, yeah. And, and that
0: makes sense. There's the least amount of difference between the Material Plane and the Feywild Wild and the Shadowfell. It is described as an altered reflection of the material plane. The Feywild is very bright. It's very chaos woohoo. Time is not linear in the Feywild. It stretches and compresses. As far as the rules as written go, it doesn't progress backwards. But you could end up walking in and spend hours in the Feywild and come back and only seconds have passed. Or you can go in and spend an hour, and you come back out, and 20 years have passed.
1: So for my physics friends, this actually winds up being either time dilation, or time contraction, so much like real life, you can't go into the past. But time can either be squished or stretched.
0: Yes. It can be compressed to the point where it's almost instantaneous, um, and it can be stretched to well beyond the normal lifespan of a single person.
1: Right. That can be a lot of fun. And you can do that early on in the campaign if you need it for a plot point. So if you wanted to roll, the roll 20 is days becomes years. So you could have your level one characters stumble into a Fae portal and do a quick quest or two for someone within the Fae. And maybe by the time they hit level two, they find their way out or they're granted to come out and they step out. And now it's 500 years in the future from when they left and everything's changed and different. I and mean, that's a quick way you can play with some time within your campaign
0: right that would actually be a pretty interesting thing to do because like i said the Feywild wild is more forgiving to lower level characters just by its nature it's a lot more mind tricks than it is actual physical harm not to say that you can't get in really deep trouble going into the Feywild. wild there are still entities there that will eat you for breakfast all of the arch fey are not to be trifled with
1: Absolutely. And then there's never make a promise in the Fae. And again, going back to uh, an early campaign setup, any kind of deals or promises your characters may have made in the Fae, you know, at level one or level two when they come out to the overall world, perhaps that leaves a hook for that Fae to come back into the material plane later on. And that can add a lot to story and gameplay. Yeah, definitely Feywild early in a campaign can be a lot of fun and have a lot of long-lasting effects. As Ian said, this is one of the few times we'll say that the Fey are the friendliest of your options.
0: They actually are, and it's frightening to say that because they are not friendly in a lore sense. But then on the other side, you have the Shadowfell, which is all doom and gloom and undead and it's all of the goth kids it is the goth kid dimension of DD. there are a lot of planar pockets a lot of demi planes within the shadow fell the most famous one is barovia where curse of strahd takes place so strahd von zarevich controls a demi plane within the shadow fell
1: this is your vampire hot topic plane typo negative is playing from a speaker you can't quite ever figure out where exactly it's coming from but it's always on
0: always and the shadow fell is where all of the edgy teens favorite dnd deity the raven queen is she has set up residence in the shadow fell i don't know i'm i like the raven queen but not as much as everyone else seems to like the raven queen
1: she has her moments i mean i can kind of say i'm a fan
0: as far as mortals who became gods Kelimvor is my
1: boy Again, I got to go, and again, this is old Dragonlance, but I got to go with Rastaline. He didn't quite do it. He got up to the thing, was able to see through time, realized that if he did it, one, he'd win, and then he'd get bored. And so he decided not to.
0: Anyway, we're getting a little bit off topic here. Yes. Once you get past the near realms, the echo realms, you get to the inner circle, which is your elemental planes: So your air, fire, earth, and water And then you have your transitive planes in between them. So you have a plane of ice, you have a plane of ooze, you have a plane of cinders, I think it is, a a plane of ashes, and a a plane of magma, I think, is the one between fire and earth. Um, I'd have to
1: double check my notes. I'm looking at it right now. Give me a second. Between fire and earth, it's the cinder wastes.
0: But the most common one for people to go through to is the plane of fire. Because that's where the City of Brass is. The City of Brass is basically where the Interplanar Bazaar is. If you want to buy a magic item, the City of Brass is where you can find it. But you have to be real careful because the Efreet, the Fire Genies, run the City of Brass and they're not very friendly.
1: So The City of Brass, and again, I'm going to reference some really, really old fantasy books because that's just what I do. But if you've ever read the Another Fine Myth series from Aspen, I think they were written in the 70s or 80s. They do have some planar travel, and they had The City of Diva, which were run by devils, not devils, because that, that always insulted them if you called them devils. But it was that kind of multicultural, bizarre Where it was that hub that if you had a magic item, that's where you went, that's where you found things, it's where you found dragons, it's where you'd find contraband from other planes or other realms. So that was kind of like if you needed something, you could pick it up there and try to sneak it off to another thing. But the saying was, if you shook a hand with a devil, always count your fingers afterwards to make sure you had the right number of fingers.
0: And one of the other things about the inner planes before we move along that I found really interesting when I was reading through this was in the Swamp of Oblivion, which is the Plane of Ooze. It's the transitive plane between water and earth. If you go into the Swamp of Oblivion and you cast an item into it, it is lost to the planes for at least 100 years.
1: Oh, that could be fun.
0: So according to the lore... That's why a lot of people end up going there, because they find this big powerful artifact that the big bad is trying to use, and they want to get rid of it so that the big bad can't use it, and they can't destroy it because it's an artifact of too great power, so they just... Cast it into the swamp to delay the
1: inevitable. Okay, here's a horrible evil DM plot point that I totally want to run. So, looking at the map, you've got the material plane, you've got the Feywild, and then the Swamp of Oblivion is actually right next to the Feywild. So, you've got this magical item or whatever that you have to hide from the big bag evil guy. You make a deal with a fairy or a fey, you go through the Feywild, you toss this thing into the Swamp of Oblivion where it disappears and it's lost to the planes for 100 years. But then, coming back through the Feywild, you have time dilation. And you come back like a week before that 100 years expires.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That would be, I don't know, I wouldn't do that as a DM because I wouldn't want my players to feel like they just spent, you know, seven sessions getting to the swamp to throw the item in and then getting back just to have all of their work mean nothing.
1: Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It would depend on the party, but that could be a lot of fun depending on how you're going to go. And then you have to figure out a way to go back. And figure out how to how to fix that or something else. But again, depending on how you want to do that. That has potential, I think. I would probably try it. Again, I would have to flesh it out better.
0: But another thing that the book did mention is that there are adventurers who go to the Swamp of Oblivion that are treasure hunters. And they're going through the swamp hoping to find some artifact that has resurfaced. So that is another potential adventure that you can do where you can go through you know of an item that was taken and cast into the swamp a hundred years ago and now you're going through the portals to the swamp to try and find it before the other guys do
1: this would be a good way to run a quest where you wanted your characters to finally get a hold of like some very rare items or even possibly like a legendary or mythic item this would be a great way to present that
0: I would even do this for, if they wanted an artifact like one of the orbs of dragonkind, the orb that lets you control dragons of a certain color. We end up having, let's just say, for argument's sake, we end up having a Thordak sort of arc endgame. This dragon is entirely too powerful for us to fight, but we know that the red orb of dragonkind was tossed into the swamp a hundred years ago, so we're going to go to the swamp And hope we can find it. Because it should be resurfacing.
1: That would be a fun way to do that, yeah.
0: And then it becomes a scavenger hunt.
1: That would be really cool.
0: And so, once you get past the inner realms, you get to the outer realms, which are all of your aligned realms. And, like I said, some of them are more well-known than others. The Nine Hells, Beator, is one. The Eternal Battlefield of Acheron is one. That's where Grumsh is. The God of the Orcs, that's where... Maglubiet the god of goblins and hobgoblins is they're on the eternal battlefield and then you have the abyss and then you have places like Mount Celestia which is lawful good you have Mechanus which is the plane of law Um, you have Limbo which is the plane of chaos you know you have the different planes in between all of them this is high high level planar travel that you got going on
1: Right. This is level three weird. Like if the Fae, Wild, and Shadowfell's level one weird, your inner plane's level two weird, we're full level three weird now.
0: And so this is where you can end up having things where you go and meet a god. Because most of your gods are going to be on these outer planes. So like Tiamat is in, I think she's in Avernus. I think she's got a demiplane in Avernus. So that would be the first layer of the nine hells. You've got a lot of your lawful good gods that are in Mount Celestia. I can't think of any others specifically, but like I was mentioning before, Grumsh and Maglubiat, and I think Ynogu, the god of gnolls, is also on Acheron. There's a lot of the martial gods, a lot of the evil aligned conquest gods that call Acheron home.
1: Right. Now, another thing with the outer planes that's similar to the Feywild and the Shadowfell that the inner plane doesn't have is they do have the option for like a status effect. So there's the optional rules for like once you're in this plane, you have to make a save or you have to make a roll to prevent some sort of mind altering or body altering effect to take hold of the players. So whether it's, you know, they become giddy or they become depressed or they become confused, these planes will definitely mess with the player's mind. And so if we're going back again a couple sessions and we're dealing with things like sanity points or honor or things like that, these planes can affect those other points if you're using those points in your game.
0: Absolutely, and it has a stronger effect on characters whose alignment doesn't match the plane that they're in. So if you have a party going to Mount Celestia, for example, the Lawful Good Paladin is going to be just fine. The Chaotic Neutral Rogue, not so much.
1: Yeah, he's going to be a little uncomfy.
0: And the Neutral Evil Necromancer is going to have it worse.
1: Well, That's because everyone's judging McJudge-Judge.
0: Judge. Whereas... On the inverse, if you're going into the Nine Hells, someone who is chaotic good would be in direct opposition to the lawful evil of the Nine Hells. So they would get the double whammy of law versus chaos and good versus evil, whereas someone like a lawful neutral monk, they're not going to feel it so bad because lawful lawful matches up And there's not a big difference between evil and neutral. If it was, you know, lawful good, you'd end up having a strong clash there. But a lawful neutral, not so much.
1: Basically, the monk would spend like the entire time there saying, I see what you did. You're not wrong. You're an asshole, but you're not wrong. You, I see what you did. You're not wrong. You're an asshole, but you're not. That would be be the entire conversation, the entire. (laughs) I understand where you're coming from.
0: I don't like your methods.
1: No, you wouldn't even mind the methods cuz the method would be correct it's the end result. It's like you're a dick, it
0: would be But you're not wrong <laughs> because good and evil tends to pivot on the intentions behind the actions. And so an evil act is in the cut and dry black and white D&D world an evil act is demonstrably evil. And so a neutral character they would probably see the evil act and be like, but you could have done it this way and not been so evil about it. Right. So that's where I was getting at with that.
1: Yeah, that's why I was saying, like, what you did wasn't wrong. Your end result, uh, you didn't have to be such a dick about it, but you weren't wrong.
0: (laughs) They're going to question whether the ends justified the means. And then one last thing before we move on to our next topic. Outside of all of this, outside of this whole cosmos we got, are the Far Realms. And the Far Realms are where all of your aberrations come from. This is where your mind flayers come from. This is where the aboleths originally came from. Beholders came from the Far Realms. This is where your eldritch horrors live.
1: This is where the weird goes to 11.
0: Yeah, this is where they crank the weird up to 11 and snap off the knob. This is where you get things, like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the uh, Hunger of Hadar, which is you open a portal to the Far Realms and these tentacles come out and with slurping noises and whispers and the does mind stuff to you. It's not fun.
1: Right, so if you're going to play like a Lovecraftian campaign or like a horror campaign for Halloween or just whatever, you're probably going to start you know, dipping your toes into the Shadowfell, you're probably going to b- take a quick jaunt to the Outer Planes, and then you're really, really coming to these way out other planes.
0: For those of you who are fans of the Dresden Files series, these are outsiders. This is the outside. The Far Realms are what's beyond the gate at the end of the Realm of Winter.
1: And there's not really, in I mean, these are all just weird. There's no, like, everything else kind of has a balance between good and evil or chaotic and neutral or lawful or whatever. These are just weird. I think one of the greatest things I've ever heard talking about outsiders and weird is called cosmic indifference. Much like an ant would see you or you would see an ant. And you're walking down the street and if you step on an ant, it's not because you're sinister or you're malicious. It's just you don't bother to notice the ant because it's so far beneath you. A lot of these creatures go this way where they have their own machinations and their own desires and wants. And any kind of mortal is just a thing in their way that they might not even bother to notice. And so, like I said, these can get really, really out there if you want to.
0: So, we're going to go ahead and transition off of the planes because we've been rambling about, rambling about for half an hour now. So, but this is something that we're wanting to revisit just because there's so much here and there's so much potential to incorporate into your stories. You know, how to place permanent portals to specific realms within your world, where they would be found, what sort of activations they would have. And so, we're wanting to at some point in the near future, probably break down planar travel into smaller chunks that we can go into more detail on. So let's go ahead and move on to our next topic. The next topic is going to be supernatural gifts and epic boons. Because if you're going to other planes, these supernatural gifts are really a great reward to get for doing something for one of these entities on another plane of existence. These are things that an archfey will give you for doing a service or a god or an archdevil or someone of that power level.
1: Right. This is what you get when you play the favor game. Hopefully there's not a hook involved, but...
0: Yeah, hopefully. But typically there are two categories of gifts. You either get a gift before you go do something to have a better chance of succeeding at what you're doing or you get it at the end of something as a reward for having done it so like a paladin might receive a gift from their god or from the entity that holds their oath in the case of someone like an oath of ancients it might be a primordial elemental or even an archfey you would get that boon before going to do some big dangerous daring do on behalf of that entity
1: Right, or if you've just stumbled along and done something either by design or by chance that's benefited that deity or that entity for whatever reason, they can come and drop a thank you, however they wish to do. And the strength or size of this thank you or gift or whatever you want to call it really depends on the DM. It can be something small as you know a magical item trinket like a little plus one, whatever, or it can be something huge and game-changing, and that's where you get like your mythic artifacts or things like that. It really can run the gambit. Generally, it's tied to how difficult. The task was, or how important it was,
0: and it also would depend on your level. So, you know, a level four party isn't going to get a very rare magic item unless you really want to throw off the balance of your game for the next thirty sessions.
1: Right, and again, that's a DM call, but we would strongly advise against.
0: And the boons that they have suggested in the Dungeon Master's Guide, they generally fall into one of three categories boost an ability score by two points up to a maximum of 22. So this would be a way for a character who has a max 20 score to actually go beyond what is physically possible within normal confines of the material plane. They could grant a race or class ability that they wouldn't normally have access to, or they could grant the effects of a magic item as a passive effect that just lingers on them.
1: So these are all options. There is one set that I actually found really interesting. Specifically, there's a list of blessings that a character can get. And what I found really neat is that even if a character happens to be in something like an anti-magic zone, the blessing is still active, so it doesn't negate that, which is kind of neat. So if you wanted to go back again, referencing uh, a session from a couple weeks ago, but if you were doing our mage downtime thing and you were in that anti-magic field where the mages were having their contest, and you had a blessing from a deity or a god or another otherworldly entity, you would still have that effect of that blessing within the anti-magic zone, which is actually kind of a neat little sneaky thing you could try to drag in with you.
0: Right. That's because these gifts aren't considered magic. They are actually altering your physical person and imbuing this power within you. So it's actually akin to what in 3rd edition would have been supernatural ability.
1: Right. These gifts are quite literally divine.
0: Yes. And because they are gifts that are bestowed by an entity, if you end up going against the entity, they can withdraw their gift from you so
1: take it from you
0: yeah the good lord giveth and the good lord taketh away so that's another thing that i noticed that i really liked and they do suggest also to make sure that you tailor the gift the blessing that you give to a character to that character so like don't give the seven int barbarian a plus two intelligence blessing. Give them a plus two strength or a plus two constitution blessing instead.
1: Uh, you know what? I could almost see giving them a plus two if they were eight or even a int as a mercy gift to bring them up to normal. I could almost see that. But yeah, definitely make make the blessings or whatever. Again, make it fit the story. Make it fit the character. Again, because these can really shift and affect the way the game's played and the setting of the game. So you don't hand these out frivolously at all.
0: So, moving on from the Supernatural Gifts, you end up getting to the Epic Boons. Now, the Epic Boons are the 5th edition way to go past level 20. In previous editions, you could continue leveling past level 20. I think it was the Book of Exalted Deeds in 3rd edition that detailed epic level, so going up to level 30. And 4th edition, I know, also had a mechanical system to go up to level 30. They haven't done that in 5th edition. Instead, they have these epic boons. So once you hit level 20, for every 30,000 experience points you get after hitting level 20, you get to pick one of these boons, and they are big.
1: They really are. They are huge.
0: And so this allows you to tailor your character once they hit level 20 to continue to actually progress your character because they would still get their natural normal hit point progression of course but this also allows you to expand what they're capable of to truly supernatural levels to i mean almost demigod levels there's some of these like the boon of high magic you gain an additional ninth level spell slot If you're capable of casting 9th level spells.
1: I was looking at Boon of Fortitude, just bam, an extra 40 hit points. Yeah,
0: Boon of Fortitude is a good one. Boon of Skill Proficiency, you become proficient in all skills.
1: Boon of Luck I really like. There's another one that's very similar. Boon of Fate and Boon of Luck. Basically, you can roll a d10 and add it or subtract it to a roll. Boon of Luck is to your own, Boon of Fate is to someone else's.
0: Boon of Speed add an extra 30 feet to your movement speed. Plus so, you get
1: dash and disengage as an action. Oh yeah, because you can... Or bonus action, rather. Yeah,
0: yeah, so now you can dash and disengage as a bonus action if you couldn't already. And a lot of these are also used once per day. So like Boon of Combat Prowess, if you miss with an attack, you can decide once per day that it hits instead. Actually, no. Was that
1: I, once per day or once per short rest?
0: I, I take that back. You're right. It is once per short rest. So, so once, I mean, once per can, short rest, you can just decide, no, I hit.
1: Okay, I'm going to take a nap. Okay, I'm away. I, look, I hit again.
0: Boon of Invincibility. When you take damage from any source, you can reduce the damage to zero, once per short rest. <laughs> I didn't feel it. I call light. Boon of Peerless Aim. You can give yourself plus 20 on a range attack, once per short rest. Things like that. I really like Boon of Immortality. You stop aging and you can't die of natural causes.
1: I like that one. Of these, I think Boon of Fire Soul sounds a little broken to me. You have immunity to fire damage, which is great on its own, and you can also cast Burning Hands at will without using a spell slot or any components.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a bit much. I mean, that's, it's, that's a bit heavy. I think Burning Hands, I can't remember, I think it's 2d6 or 3d6 fire damage.
1: Yeah, it has a DC save of 15, so I mean, even that's not an easy roll. I mean, Burning Hand, is it a first level or a second level spell? I,
0: I believe it's a first level spell.
1: Yeah, it is a first level spell. Okay, good. Even still, that's a fairly potent spell to be able to cast like a cantrip and just, you know, shovel it out whenever you want.
0: Because it's also a, if I remember correctly, a 15-foot cone.
1: That is correct.
0: So you can splash an area for 3d6 fire damage every turn. Just boom, 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 boom. But yeah, that's a nice, neat way to go about doing it. And it really does give your character that feel of truly being an entity of supreme power.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you are pushing demigod status by the time you start picking these up.
0: Yeah, once you pick up a few of these, you could actually go and fight some gods. Let's do it. (laughs) But yeah, so that's the boons and the supernatural gifts. The other thing that we wanted to talk about with this one was alien tech.
1: And this alien tech kind of really works and ties in with this planar travel idea really well. If you're role-building and you're doing your own thing, who's to say that you travel from one material plane that you have to go to an inner plane or an outside plane? What if you go to a different material plane?
0: Yeah, what if you just travel to another planet? Exactly. So the guy who ran the game store that I used to go to every so often when I was at UVA up in Charlottesville, he was telling us about In his game, he had his party pass through a portal, and so they went from Faerun to New York City. They came out in an alleyway in New York City. He was talking about how the ranger got arrested for trying to sleep in a tree in Central Park.
1: That's awesome. I could totally see that. Yeah, so something like this. If you want to run a steampunk campaign, this is a really easy way to kind of bring out this extra technology or things that your character wouldn't necessarily see in a fantasy setting. And the book actually covers it. So there is a section talking about how to deal with technology that your characters wouldn't or shouldn't be terribly familiar with.
0: Right. And I'm trying to remember the name of the module. I think it's something involving the Barrier Hills, if I remember correctly. And it's the party ends up discovering a crashed alien spaceship. And so it's all of this futuristic sci-fi tech within. And so it's all these robots that they just perceive them as being iron golems because that's how you would do it in your world. You would build the body out of metal and then you would animate it with magic. Whereas these are constructs of metal that are being animated by electricity
1: right so like i said there's a lot of ways generally these are going to require an intelligence check to kind of figure out what they are and how they work so until the ape figures out that if he bashes the stone with the bone hammer the monolith's just going to sit there and buzz at him type thing
0: and it does give guidelines for this because it does also say that it requires
1: multiple
0: successful intelligence checks So in order to get a successful intelligence check, you have to roll a 15 or higher to get a success on your intelligence check. So it's a DC-15 intelligence check to succeed once. A simple thing, see here the examples that they give are a cigarette lighter, a calculator, or a revolver. So a simple item would require two intelligence checks, but a more complex item like, see here, a computer, a chainsaw, or a hovercraft would require up to four or even more if it was a really sophisticated sort of piece of equipment. You get advantage if you've seen it in use or if you have used something similar to it. And if you roll a 20 or higher on your intelligence check, you get advantage on your next check.
1: Some really good games out there that kind of deal with this where it's not quite necessarily alien technology, but it's, as I said at the beginning, you know, a technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic, which is just one of my favorite quotes. But Horizon Zero Dawn, where they have the tech is so old and ancient, they've basically deified it. Fallout kind of touches on this too, where it's sufficiently advanced for most people, especially when you get to the high military tech, like the Enclave technology or things like that, where you kind of have half an idea but you're not exactly sure. That said, there is a caveat that if you see the tech being used, you can get advantage on a roll to figure out how to use it yourself. Something like this, I would probably give advantage if the character has something like the ability to use a magical device, like a bard or a rogue, perhaps an artificer. I would be inclined to maybe give an advantage on that kind of check because they're used to kind of tinkering things. I would let an artificer make a good argument that he might be able to take advantage on a check if he's used to figuring out how things work and tinker with them as well.
0: Yeah, depending on the sort of things that the artificer does. If it's an alchemist artificer, I'm not going to let them get advantage on this mechanical device that he has found. But if it was an armorer artificer, I might.
1: Right, but I would let the alchemist artificer take an advantage on something like a battery or something like that. Oh yeah,
0: or a grenade, something that's, you know, gunpowder based.
1: So, I mean, these are definitely different ways. Even like something like an internal combustion engine or something like that would actually be kind of cool. Or even a steam engine for that matter. That'd be pushing it a little bit. But even still, I mean, now I kind of want to sit there and work to see how I can make the artificer. And again, my brain wants to go steampunk and do like His Dark Materials type ideas.
0: Yeah, that could be really fun. But the book does give you guidelines for putting in... Renaissance-level firearms, modern-level firearms, and futuristic firearms. And the sort of damage ranges that you can get with those. And also putting in modern explosive devices, so grenades, dynamite, just a grenade launcher, things like that. So you could actually have them acquire, through their planar travels, mundane items that would be modern or futuristic weapons... That you can bring into your D&D game. So you could actually have your rogue with a laser pistol.
1: Remember when we referenced the City of Brass? This is a great time for the City of Brass.
0: Yeah, I could see this. But I could totally see, like, let's just say a paladin or a fighter that has the archery fighting style. And you get them a jetpack and a laser pistol. And now you have the Mandalorian.
1: That would be awesome. You had referenced earlier a chainsaw. That would be kind of fun too. Maybe it's not a brand new chainsaw. Maybe it's an old chainsaw. So if they want to use the chainsaw, obviously that'd be a 1d12. It would be a versatile weapon, but you've got to roll a 1d6. I'd probably say either on a 1 or maybe even a 1 or 2 It fails to start. So you're just sitting there pulling that string trying to get that chainsaw to start. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And then you also have to, as part of your intelligence checks... You have to reverse engineer how they run. So, like a chainsaw, once it runs out of fuel, is useless. A laser pistol, once you run out of energy cells, is useless. A modern firearm, once you run out of bullets, is useless.
1: I would totally drop for my players Barney Fife's pistol with his one bullet. <laughs>
0: I think Not actually did that in campaign two of Critical Role. This is fairly recent because I think I just finished episode 32 of the second campaign. And now they're already talking about doing a third campaign. But on their way out of Duke, Not ended up stealing the gun off of one of the guards as they were leaving. And it had one round in the chamber. And that's it.
1: That's awesome. So if you want to have a lot of fun with the story you kind of want to do something a little different, let your imagination run. This gives you a lot of options to work with. And it's definitely something we would advise you try just to break up the monotony of an everyday session. It's something different you can throw at your characters. Even if you do a one-off, it's good fun.
0: Personally, I love to blur the line between science fiction and fantasy. So you end up having things like lightsabers. You know, Star Wars is a wonderful blend between science fiction and fantasy because you have starships and magic. You can't tell me that the Force is not a magic system, because it is.
1: Absolutely, Everyone rolled Sorcerer, though. Oh (laughs) my god, wild magic Force user.
0: Yeah, that would be interesting. You go to Force choke somebody, and three people just have their heads pop off.
1: That would be like a Jedi training series, but they have got so much power with the Force, they can't fully control it, so it just kind of leaks out or kind of backlashes (laughs) against them.
0: They'd be walking down the street, and then all of a sudden, things just start almost like a magnet pull pulling to them.
1: Yeah, or like if they try to do a force push and then they do like force lightning or maybe everyone would like lose the past three seconds of memory and forget where they're at.
0: Right. They tried to do the whole Yoda lifting and stacking the rocks, but they end up doing like the manhole cover from the the nuclear test, the nuclear bomb test, <laughs> where it basically reaches exit velocity and ju- awesome. it just disappears off the planet. Just rocketing through the vastness of space
1: yeah that would actually be okay so if you're listening to us disney plus uh we're giving you some ideas if you use our ideas uh you can write the check to uh, utc
0: you write the check to ian woodworth and james daly or just write two checks one to each of us so that we don't have to worry about having to divvy it up i'm sure you have two checks in your checkbook
1: the last two in the book it's amazing But yeah, so anyway, again, these give you a lot of options to work with. As you noticed with Ian and I, just a couple minutes sitting down and brainstorming. You can come up with some really, really fun, unique ideas.
0: I mean, just the concept of because you can have portals between dimensions that run one way, that would mean that a portal could open up on our world and say a squad of soldiers in Iraq wanders through this portal and they come out in the desert in Faerun. And so you've got these modern American soldiers walking through Faerun with their Kevlar body armor and their M16s.
1: I like it. Definitely would have resistance against piercing weapons, very obviously.
0: I think that would actually be an interesting campaign beginning.
1: It would be, because they'd have their weapons in their rounds, so they'd only have so many rounds, and after that, they'd have to use survival skills to see what they could fashion, or, I mean, I'm sure they'd have knives, so they'd all have, you know, a 1d4 dagger with them.
0: Well, they'd be able to find civilization, and once they get over the culture shock, then they would end up having to transition from the weapons that they know to these new weapon sets and this new skill set, and then at the end of it, Maybe they figure out how to get back. Maybe one of them happens to be magic sensitive and start getting caster levels. And once they're able to cast Plane Shift, they can take everybody back. And then it becomes a question of, here we are. We have become these powerful people. If we go back, we're just Joe Schmo again. Do we really want to go back?
1: Yeah, and I've read many a novel. That kind of falls along those lines, too.
0: It's kind of like the Stargate movie.
1: Yeah, a little bit. Or even Narnia to a bit. And again, these just kind of some ideas that you can really work with. And like I said, I'm going to wind up nerd sniping myself real fast on these. I'm just going to sit there and like, la la la. All
0: right. I think we have rambled and moseyed enough for one day. So if you're still listening, thank you for sticking with us and putting up with us as we traipsed through the multiverse. If you enjoyed what you heard, or if there's something that you would like us to cover in a little more depth, send us an email, undercommontaste at gmail.com, or send us a direct message through our Twitter account, at UCT Homebrew. I'm over there at the Twitter account, putting up my Shakespearean insult inspired roleplay prompts. Six days a week.
1: You've had some really good ones this past week. Again, our podcast can be found wherever you're finding podcasts. Always feel free to uh, rate and uh, comment on our podcasts. We'll catch you next week.
0: Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCTHomeBrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dr. Mary C. Crowell. Again, thank you for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.